0: Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. On Easter Sunday 1722, the Dutch explorer Jacob Roggeveen arrived at a remote Pacific island. He called it Easter Island, but the people who lived there called it Rapa Nui. Over the next 300 years, visitors to the island have marvelled at its astonishing stone monuments. But they've also been confounded by a seemingly dramatic collapse in the island's population. In the April issue of BBC History magazine, the archaeologist Kat Jarman explores the island's history and the debates that surround it. The magazine's editor, Rob Attar, spoke to Kat to find out more.
4: So Kat, you're probably more familiar to our podcast listeners through your work on the Vikings. So I'd be interested to know how you came to also research the Rapa Nui who are on the other side of the world and often in a different time period.
2: Yeah, so this came about actually when I was uh, working on on my PhD. I had always uh, been very interested in Rapa Nui from uh, I was a little child. So I grew up in Oslo, in Norway, and uh, one of the big museums there was the Viking Ship Museum, and the Vikings became my, my sort of big big career, uh, really. But next to it is uh, a museum called the Kontiki Museum, which is the Museum of Tu Heyerdahl, who is uh, an explorer and anthropologist who quite famously sailed uh, across the Pacific uh, on a raft called the Kontiki. Uh, but he was also involved in archaeological work on Rapa Nui, uh, starting in the 1950s, and then the his foundation and the Kentucky Museum were involved in the 1980s as well. So I got an opportunity when I was in the middle of my PhD to take a, a different uh, project on and actually work with those collections so work on the archeological materials and uh, employ some of the new bioarchaeology methods so looking at, at bone especially um, to answer some questions and, and there were still some outstanding questions about Rapanuri, especially in terms of the environment and uh, and consumption of food and, and fish. So that's how I got into it uh, as a sort of side uh, side hustle, as it were.
4: And actually, one thing we should probably clarify fairly early on is what we're going to call the island, because I think most of our listeners might know it as Easter Island, and you so far have been calling it Rapa Nui. What do these two names symbolise about the island?
2: Yeah, so Easter Island is is the um, the name that most of us will recognise. That was the name that was given to the island by the first European to to go there. So that was a, a Dutch explorer called Jacob Broggevin who arrived there and um, is sort of said to have discovered as it, as it were, but really just the first European to to come across it and that took place on Easter Sunday 1722 and because this was a new unknown island to him uh, Rogavan decided to name it Easter Island of course he didn't know that the island already had a name but they had been uh, had a, a population already so the name Rapa Nui really is the name that the island had already by uh, given by the native population. Uh, it's also got a slightly different name, which uh, is Tepito Henua, which means the navel of the world, which I think is quite a nice name. But Rapa Nui, I think really now is the ex- most commonly accepted name for it.
4: And it is what the people on Rapa Nui themselves would use.
2: Yes, exactly. So that th- this is their name for their island. So I think that's, that's, that's probably the most appropriate for us to use as well.
4: Yes, that's, that seems fair. Um, so how much do we know about the kind of pre-European settlement of Rapa Nui? Do we have a rough date for when people first arrived on the island?
2: So this has been uh, quite a big subject of debate, actually. And now pretty much all researchers agree that the island was settled around 1200 uh, AD. And uh, it was settled from other parts of Polynesia. And we know that because of things like uh, archaeology and because of linguistic similarities, these these people there speak Polynesian languages. And uh, it it is quite clear that that's where they came from. But the date of that has been controversial. And initially, in fact, in part, some of that early work of of Heyerdahl's group suggested that people uh, arrived on the island much, much earlier, perhaps even as early as, as 400 AD. Um, but none of that, when we've sort of reconsidered the evidence, it doesn't really stack up. So 1200 seems to be the uh, the accepted date.
4: And has there been any debate about where the people came from? Have any people suggest they might have come from South America?
2: Yeah, absolutely. So, that uh, is one of those other big debates. Um, so, even though all those links are quite clear with other Polynesian um, settlements, so quite a, a few people have tried to argue that South Americans must have, have come across uh, to settle the island. Um, again, Heidel was one of those who really wanted to prove this. And in part, part of his experiments was to show that it was possible. Uh, we do know it is possible to travel from South America uh, and, and across to, to Eastern Ireland. Um, and I think we should, should sort of point out here that actually the, the distance between the island and South America is, is about 2,000 miles. So it's a really, really vast distance. If you think about it, these are people who aren't, haven't got big, big sailing ships. They are really quite small rafts and boats. Um, so we know it's physically possible, but there is no... Actual evidence of it, um, so the the sort of anthropological and linguistic links are pointing to Polynesia, but there are some other strange clues. Like quite recently, for example, we know that um, sweet potato is is very commonly used. We now know that that actually comes from South America. So one of the questions is how did it get there? We we have evidence now that actually it arrived before Europeans. So did did it? seeds float across? So was there other sort of sources or or was it the more likely reason that people actually came from South America to Polynesia? So things like that have been um, sort of questions, uh, I suppose, around it. Um, We've now also tried to look at that with uh, genetic research. And again, it's a little bit confusing. So looking at modern DNA, for example, so looking at if you take DNA samples from the current population of the island. The vast majority do have Polynesian origins, but there are some studies that have shown a very small percentage of that South American um, DNA as well, which through various ways of looking at the statistics have been suggested actually took place before European contact. Um, to date, no ancient DNA has shown or proven Conclusively, any of that South American contact, so I was involved in one project, for example, where we looked at uh, d- we took DNA samples of some uh, some human remains from a site called Anakena, and uh, we found purely Polynesian DNA there, but it was just a very small sample. Not much has been done yet, so I guess the jury is still open, uh, but there does seem to have been a contact in some way either from South America to the island. Or possibly the other way. It could well have been the, the Rapa Nui population that went across to South America um, in that direction.
4: I mean, Because obviously these people were remarkable voyagers um, to have come to, uh, to Rapa Nui in the first place. I mean, this was a long time ago. I, d- I suppose we know why people would have chosen to make that voyage to Rapa Nui and settle there.
2: Yeah, so we don't know exactly why, but it does seem to coincide around about 1200 with quite a big expansion eastwards from Polynesia. So you see quite a lot of other islands being settled around about the same time. And these are seafaring people. I mean, these are island people. So they are people who know how to navigate, they know how to survive for very long times at sea, they know how to fish, they know how to uh, to, to navigate using you know the stars and the winds and, and all the natural elements. so so they are very very good at this. Um, so it seems like it's probably part of that sort of wider expansion out, whether that's for uh, the usual reasons like population pressure or you know just search for new lands we don't really know, but it seems to be a part of that presumably people would have traveled further and further east and eventually come across this island.
4: Now, I suppose one of the things, or perhaps the thing that Rapa Nui is best known for around the world is the remarkable Moe statues that that dot the island. And it would be great if we could speak a little bit about those. And first of all, for anyone who who hasn't seen a, a photo of them, could you briefly describe what exactly they are?
2: Yeah, so these Mori are these very large human figures, and uh, yes, they range in size quite a lot, from the smallest ones about 2 metres up to about 10 metres, and some of them uh, are extraordinarily big and weigh up to 70 metric tonnes, a few possibly even more than that, so they're really vast, and they've got these very large giant heads and upper bodies, and some of them stand alone, others stand on big platforms. They all, and you might actually not appreciate, even if you've seen photos of them, you might not appreciate that actually, they all face inwards. So they all have their backs to the sea facing inland on this island. So they're quite spectacular. Just, you know, the, the sort of sheer art of them. Um, but also in thinking about how they were actually created. And so that's been one of those other big debates. You know, How could they? And, and some of those earliest explorers who, who encountered the island just thought, surely these primitive-seeming natives couldn't have, carried out the sort of great feats of art uh which again is another reason why some thought that other people's input people from south america must have uh, taken part in it
4: and so what what do we now know about their construction is are they like stonehenge it's another subject we've had on the podcast recently are there just still huge mysteries about the construction or have we managed to work out any of the the tricks or techniques they used
2: Yeah, I will pretty much uh, understand it now, I think. Uh, It's not that much uh, of a mystery anymore, even though people like at least headlines online, (laughs) like to make it out as some great big mystery. So they are all carved of of the local stones, obviously, and most of them from uh, a stone called Volcanic Tuff, which is a very porous stone. And it means it's actually quite relatively easy to carve so although they they look very impressive it's not you know you don't need um, iron or anything like that you can carve them fairly easily and the the stone is there's a, quite a lot of it uh, but it does come from these big uh, quarries high up on the island so so is a volcanic island it's got several volcanoes so it's quite steep and the best quarries are, are sort of right at, at the top and uh, the main statue quarry is called Rano Raraku and you really have to move them quite a long distance from there. So, I think that, in its way, uh, how the statues were moved has been the, the greatest mystery. A bit like Stonehenge, you know, we were still debating how actually did they move uh, those uh, those big stones. But in terms of Rapanui and those statues, uh, we now are pretty much know that they were well as the islanders say they were actually walked they walked themselves down the hill which sounds a a bit of a strange way of putting it but rather than early theories that they would be rolled on on logs or anything like that or on sledges they were actually walked because when you look at the statue constructions it's, it's very clever they're the the sort of when they're made up in the quarry they are made a little bit like bowling pins uh, with their bases which means that you can you can rock them side by side and by doing that the statues themselves can move so all it takes really is some very carefully placed ropes and a couple of teams of people either side pulling at it and that creates a sort of rocking motion meaning that the statues can basically walk down the hill And there's even a native word for it. It's called neke neke, which means moving forwards without legs, basically, which is what they do. And um, there's also a song to accompany it. And this is very effective. You don't need uh, rollers, you don't need anything like that. The statues can then move down the hill. They then have another process where they refinish them at the end so they can stand on these platforms. Some of them have a hat that's put uh, on top of their heads uh, afterwards as well, which again, we've got some evidence now of platforms being used and ramps to roll them up. So I think we've got that quite clear. It's, It's a very quite straightforward way of moving the statues.
4: But still, it does sound like quite a lot of work. So I suppose the other obvious question is, they are remarkable constructions, but why did these people do it when so many other people didn't do similar things?
2: Yeah, absolutely. And I think that is one of the things that we can't quite answer. But I think we need to look into what they are and how they're being used. And these have got very important religious and ceremonial functions. Uh, we know that the Rapanuri actually consider them as the embodiment of their ancestors. So they're not just stone statues or artworks, but they are actually representatives. So These are the ancestors. So each statue is essentially a person who used to live on, on the island. So in that sense, they're, they're actually real. And the statues are also used for, for burials, the statue platforms around them that are burials, there are various ceremonial um, rituals taking place there. And they are sort of community gathering points, I suppose. So I think our understanding really, I mean, we, we do know from the earliest ethnographic uh, um, and European accounts of, of interviewing uh, the people of Rapa Nui that the, the island was divided into different, what we we would know as sort of chiefdom or sort of something like that, different socio-political groups, and the statues do seem to, to sort of relate to different areas. So they would have had some kind of function like that perhaps within the clan if these are the ancestors. Um, and obviously they're considered as sort of religious deities in a way uh, as well. and um, So that clearly seems to be very important. There's other theories that the locations represent important resources. So, if, if we think about the fact that they are pointing inwards, they're pointing, they're sort of protecting from the sea and, and sort of looking in and protecting the island's resources. That's probably really important as well. And some of them may be marking things like springs, freshwater springs, for example. So, it seems like whatever the reasons were, it was extremely important culturally and socially and possibly also politically and religiously. So so that, I think, is probably the answer to why there's so many of them um, and why they are essentially spread over the whole island. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. We actually don't know how many people lived there in 1722. Uh, one of the earliest accounts suggests about 3,000, but actually those European explorers, Just came across for a you know a day or two and had no way of actually counting.
1: This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed.
3: This episode is brought to you by Twizzlers. Long day, late night, feeling a little bored, Twizzlers is the ultimate sidekick for any moment of the day, no matter what kind of day you're having. The perfect level of sweet and a fun excuse to sit back and relax. Unwind with Twizzlers. To buy now, visit hersheyland.com slash Twizzlers.
4: I suppose the other big mystery or apparent mystery that people think of when they think of uh, Rappendouille is this population decline. So from... European contact in 1722, there was a precipitous fall in the number of people living on the island. And there have been quite a few theories put forward as to to why this happened. What were the traditional kind of explanations for the numbers of people falling?
2: Yeah, so I think the population decline on Easter Island or Rapa uh really has been one of the big issues and one of the big things that have caused this idea of a big mystery. Uh, and, and you know, But actually, we do know what happened. We know very well what happened, and it, it is really not a, a, a nice story at all. But unfortunately, over the years, and especially quite recently in the last sort of 30 years or so. um, And a kind of alternative hypothesis of what happened has, has come about. And this is what's known as the collapse theory, which was especially popularized by Jared Diamond in his book by the same name, Collapse. And in that book, Jared Diamond blames the native population for essentially decimating itself and for causing a complete population decline because of uh, essentially ruining the island's environment. And if you if you look at a picture of, of Rapa Nui today, you'll see it's a pretty barren island. It's It looks like a really difficult uh, place to live. And and in fact that is true although a lot of that is actually a very modern 20th century sheep grazing that's course the landscape that you see today um but this idea that there was once a thriving population there that somehow disappeared um by the time the Europeans arrived um is one of these, these sort of uh, supposed mysteries The other idea that's related to that is this uh, ecological collapse. So that's the idea that the island once uh, had a really, really good flora, lots of animals, and lots of plants, uh, but that that was all uh, destroyed. We do know that some of that's true. So we know that there certainly were a lot of trees there. There were giant big palm trees uh, called a jubea plant. We've got pollen records and things like that to, to know that's the case. But but those trees are no longer there now. And uh, so that's one of the sort of ecocide uh, hypothesis But claims is that the islanders cut the trees down um, in part to build the statues. This is thinking that the rollers were were needed, the logs were needed to do that. Um, And so that was one part. Yeah. So, and also because the island is quite poor in 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 animals, um, it's only, they've only really, really got chickens uh, and rats, and the soils are very difficult to grow. So the idea was that there was this thriving population, lots of great uh, plants uh, and animals, and then somehow they vanished. Coupled with that was various other theories of civil war taking place. So some early accounts, some um, ethnographic accounts, suggesting that there'd been a great civil war in the 1650s that led to the decimation of, of the entire population. There's also early reports of cannibalism. So what Jared Dyben did was essentially popularise a lot of other theories about this and, and blaming uh, that population that had once been much greater um, for completely... Um, essentially just carrying out what he called ecocide so ecological suicide
4: so you don't obviously don't hold with this collapse theory so what do you put the reasons for 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 the declining population I mean, how much does it actually owe to the impact of European um, visitors and incursions also from South America
2: yeah. So I think the key here is that before European contract, we have no evidence at all of population decline. And that's what that whole ecocide uh, debate is about. We actually don't know how many people lived there in 1722. Uh, one of the earliest accounts suggests about 3,000, but actually those European explorers just came across for a, you know, a day or two and had no way of actually counting. Uh, it's been suggested that in its heyday it could have supported up to 15,000 people, but I think that's probably unlikely. Um, but then somehow, um, within a few hundred years, the population completely disappears. And what is clear now is that that did not happen before the Europeans arrived. It happened afterwards and, and because of it. so. Quite soon after that first uh, Dutch uh, expedition, lots of other Europeans came as well, some of them relatively peaceful, uh, fishermen and so on, but actually very quickly people were taken off as slaves and uh, the populations were quite badly abused. There was a a lot of violence uh, taking place as well. And then later on we start having Slave raids on a really massive scale, especially from Peru. So, vast numbers of people are taken off the island. Eventually, there's a, there's a big international outcry, and some people are, are repatriated. But with them, when they are sent back to Rapa Nui, they also take with them uh, diseases like smallpox. And for a small island with a small population where they haven't had that before, that has disastrous um, impacts. So what that leads to is in 1877, no more than 111 of the native Rapa Nui population are left on the island from several thousands. And this really is what happens to the Rapa Nui, it's, it's not uh, a sort of environmental disaster, it's, it's a, a European and South American disaster.
4: And then shortly after that, the island was colonised by a Chile. What impact did colonisation have on, on the surviving Rapa Nui? How, how did the Chileans uh, run the island?
2: Yeah, so really, uh, the island was very much taken from the native population. So this tiny, tiny population of only just over 100 people were um, forced to to live in just one small area. And uh, a lot of the island was rented out for things like sheep farming, uh, the sheep obviously having a very detrimental uh, effect. So up until quite late in the 20th century, the natives uh, really had no control over their own island, uh, and although the population could grow to a much more healthy size, um, this was really quite quite a sad story um, of what happened, and especially then having the blame uh, for it themselves as well, uh, especially as a sort of extra added insult to injury.
4: And, and I suppose one thing that's different about um, the Rapa Nui and other kind of mysteries or supposed mysteries from history, such as Stonehenge or ancient Egypt, because it's not that long ago, and there still are Rapa Nui people living on the island. So, I mean, how much are we able to learn about their early history from the inhabitants and perhaps the oral histories they retain?
2: So unfortunately, not very much. Now, they did actually have a writing system uh, as well, the Rongo writing system, but that didn't survive the uh, early Christian missionaries. So quite soon after the island's uh, encounters with the Europeans, uh, a lot of missionaries came to the island as well and relatively quickly managed to successfully Christianize the island. And with that, a lot of that original knowledge um, disappeared. So certainly any knowledge of how to to read or understand the writing system but the tablets were found so we've got quite a lot of them but we haven't been able to decipher it so we don't have that and the other problem is that actually with those early slave raids a lot of the the sort of real original population as it were were taken off the island Many of those that were brought home again uh, were actually also not originally from Rapa Nui. There was was actually a policy or quite common practice when people were brought back from South America and repatriated to to just take any Polynesian islanders and taking them back. Some of that was uh, deliberate in order to to create more conflict and, and sort of confusion back home. But one of the big problems was that a lot of the leaders uh, and so a lot of the sort of cultural and religious leaders were taken off uh, or killed. um, And so a lot of that sort of cultural uh, systems and that cultural memory just completely disappeared. So even when we start having the first scientific uh, investigations on the islands, are starting really in the early 20th century, we don't have that much of the original population left, so it had already been lost. So even though you have people on there now who are descendants of that original Rapanui population, the cultural memories and the cultural history is just no longer there, which is part of why it is a, such a sad story.
4: So you talked earlier about some of your work on the kind of diet of the Rapanui people. people. What, what were you able to discover through that research? Yeah so
2: one of the things I wanted to look at was on fish consumption because obviously we're here on an island in the middle of nowhere but there were all these reports and accounts including some of those by by Jared Diamond suggesting that they weren't actually eating a lot of fish which seemed really surprising because there's not a lot else to eat really. I mean we've got sort of various plants like taro and sweet potato being planted and um, but the island doesn't have a great sort of biodiversity, and there doesn't seem to be quite so many fish. So there was all these accounts saying these islanders had turned their back on the sea. It was, again, another idea. Palm trees were cut down, they couldn't make canoes, and so they couldn't go out and fish. But nobody had really done that much real research on it. So one of the things I wanted to look at was using bioarchaeology, so using isotope analysis, which is a way that we can pick out the diet from the actual human remains themselves. And I also, with my my colleagues, wanted to look at some of the the idea that they didn't really know how to use their resources, how to survive in a different climate. So looking at the bone, we actually found that they did eat a lot of fish. So up to about 50% of the diets came from the sea, which... um, in one way it didn't surprise us at all but it did seem to be contrary to all those other suggestions but of course we have things like fish hooks uh fish nets surviving in the archaeological record, so they definitely did fish but we could prove that they that was a significant part of the diet but we also looked at some of the soils and the way they were planting um because the sort of idea behind the ecocide debate the idea that they didn't look after the environment was that they you know they actually um didn't have enough food so it led to starvation and so on. But we were able to show that a very specific type of planting, they use these planting enclosures called manawai which are stone enclosures with things like lithic mulch, so you put stones on the top to sort of keep the soils more stable. Um, We were able to show that in those enclosures, the soils were so much better than outside. So actually, you have people here who know how to manipulate the soil. They use fertilisers, things like uh, chicken poo and seabird guano or seabird poo to actually create better fertilised soils. So far from being this sort of... um, completely unknowledgeable population that turns their back on their sea, they were eating fish and they were also manipulating their um, their environment, their landscapes, in order to be able to very successfully grow plants.
4: Now, as, as we said at the start, you've, your other main speciality is, is the Vikings, of course. Do you see any parallels between these two groups of people? I realise, as I said, they are so far apart from each other in many ways, but are there any similarities between the two?
2: Yeah, I've been asked that before, actually. I think it is a really interesting question. But they're both very maritime communities. So they are um, both populations that know how to use and exploit the sea. And I think that's a really key point. So as we talked about earlier on, the fact that they could make it there to this island in the first place is really important. So they knew how to make boats. They knew how to make suitable boats. So we mentioned briefly this, this idea of there being trees there originally. So there were these big palm trees, um, which obviously are very suitable to making news but when those trees disappear because they did disappear um not because people were callously cutting them down but because of things like invasive species rats gnawing the, the palm trees um, but that meant that there were no big palm trees to make boats so they might use different materials or other forms of wood to make rafts and other types of boats so again it's sort of it's being able to know how you use the sea and how you survive there they also seem to be very well adapted to it which i think is something we see with with the vikings as well and if we would think of the Vikings away from this whole raiding, pillaging idea, the Vikings are also very, very good at adapting to whatever circumstances they needed. So they go to Iceland, they go to Greenland, these really quite harsh territories. They go, you know, they even make it into North America, they go down to the Mediterranean, down the eastern Russian rivers, down to the Black Sea. Um, So they could kind of really adapt to different climates and and, in how they live there. And I think that's what we should think of the Polynesians as well, actually some really quite sophisticated seafarers, explorers, people who can adapt to really quite a tricky island environment.
0: And those, I think, are quite similar qualities. That was Kat Jarman. Her article on Rapa Nui is in the April issue of BBC History magazine which is on sale now and also contains features on Napoleon, Mary Seacole, Britain in 1942, and much more. Kat's latest book, River Kings, The Vikings from Scandinavia to the Silk Road, was published by William Collins in 2021. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Newitt, Jack Bateman, and Brittany Colley.